Welcome to Neuro Noodles Neurofeedback Neuropsychology Podcast featuring tech legend Jay Gunkelman. He is the man who has read well over a half a million brain scans. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. The Neuro Noodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. Like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience, and our silver supporter, Mind Media. Earn up to 16 CEU hours by attending Applied Neuroscience's NeuroGuide Workshop March 4th and 5th in Madeira Beach, Florida. It's led by none other than Dr. Robert Thatcher himself. There are two ways you can attend, online or in person, with the link AppliedNeuroscience.com slash attend hyphen ng hyphen workshops. Mind Media, get the latest EEG and neurofeedback technology from MindMedia.com. Their semi-dry sensor cap is a wonder to see and their EEG amplifiers have been trusted in the field for decades. Their neurofeedback and QEG courses will get you up to speed in no time. Visit MindMedia.com now. Well, well, Jay Gunkelman, let's uh, let, let's talk about some mental health in the news. Uh, Winona sure. Judge, she she came out with something. Did you catch that? Yeah, and you know, uh, she she basically uh, uh, kind of uh, said that there's a bunch of buttholes out there sending her uh, messages of concern and whatnot about her performing and all of that. And Winona had a, a, a fairly aggressive response to the people uh, expressing concerns. And uh, she said, you know, uh, she's okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. And uh, there are people suggesting her manager was pushing her too hard to perform and whatnot. And she said, I- I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm angry. Uh, uh, and, and additionally, uh, she said, you know, uh, my mother went through severe depressive phases before and uh, recovered, and there was no way you could have told. So that actually suggests she's uh, fairly uh, far into the hierarchy of responses to the loss. There, you know, if you look up in the literature, you find, oh, there's five stages of, of uh, recovery. No. And other people, oh, there's seven stages of recovery. You know, the number doesn't so much matter as the progress. Um, the the first, she's obviously passed the the first or second, or first and second, one or the other. Uh, shock and denial are the first two or one. That they they kind of can be combined uh, to knock it from seven to six. You know, right. um, and, and and the next one is anger. And she's obviously anger. You're angry at uh, the world. You're angry at the person, in this case, who did suicide. Um, and anger is absolutely common. And then the bargaining. And that's, that's the, 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 you know, the what ifs. Um, what if I noticed that her depression was worse, then maybe I could have done something. And maybe, you know, if, if I make a bargain with the, uh, the 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 gods or the devils or whoever you bargain with, um, maybe you could, in some magical, bizarre way, uh, reverse uh, time and bring somebody back. You know, the the bargaining and what if is just magical thinking, but it's it's also 
um, it, it's very common. What if this? How, and you're, you're in part assigning blame to yourself or others. What if so-and-so had done such and such? What if I had done this? What if they had done that? You know, And the bargaining phase right after anger is kind of a, the beginning of rationalizing things. After all that, depression is the next stage of grief. And it's important to realize that uh, depression is a temporary stage because it sure seems like it's forever when you're there. And it seems like a bottomless pit that you can't possibly get out of. But the next phase after the depression, and, and you, you need to seek help with the depressive stage. You, you don't, don't, uh, <laughs> it's like, don't do this at home by yourself. You know, yeah. um, uh, depression is serious stuff and, uh, it can take you down if you're not, uh, equipped for it. And not everybody is, uh, you, you may have, uh, uh, earlier life experiences that predispose you towards it even. So you don't want to, you know, handle that stage of loss by yourself. You want to, uh, you want to pick up a professional, uh, preferably. Um, you know, there's always the good friend slash bartender level assistance that's out there. Yeah. Uh, but in, in this kind of a case, having somebody that's going to do something other than tell you a joke to try and get you out of it is probably the right thing to do get get somebody who knows what they're doing uh with the psychology and psychiatry um uh, not all depression needs medication uh but there are some that that may end up helping especially if they know what your eg looks like obviously and we've had some discussions about that right um acceptance is the next phase and uh, acceptance uh, uh, is the last phase acceptance and hope basically uh, that you know the there's light after the darkness of the depression that you were in you accept the loss and you 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 see that there's actually hope in life and you kind of come out of the the, uh, the depths of uh, the, the the loss and uh, uh, the people who think there's seven stages instead of five also add on uh, the, the stage of uh, uh, basically processing the grief. And that kind of assumes that you might have already latched on to a professional during the depressive phase uh, to end up guiding you through the uh, processing of your grief. Because not, you know, not everybody processes grief in a, in a, in a positive, uh, uh, constructive way. Uh, so, James, so somebody go see a, a, a clinician and you know they're a professional and then they you have the option for drugs or you can do neurofeedback if you do neurofeedback for for depression there's no magic number but more often than not would it be about 20 between 20 and 40 sessions you think yeah somewhere in that range and it depends upon you know what patterns people have in their brain at the time right and everybody can come in the door you know, for a purpose and have two or three other things actually already going on in their brain. So uh, sometimes it takes a little while to unwrap the onion to get down to the middle of it. 
and um, uh, that it, 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 you know if there's two or three things it takes a little bit longer um, but it, it doesn't take forever and it's a it's a learning process it's not a treatment it's a training and as such at the end you've got a skill set not an effect and uh, it, it it's a it's like a take home you know you uh, you you get it you've got it um, and it's not something that's going to fade and disappear like a massage. I mean, oh man, that massage was so great. I really felt wonderful and relaxed. You know, a week later, I got this kink back. You know, I, you know, I, I think I'm going to go back in for a little treatment. Well, if it's a training, you've learned how to do it yourself. If it's a treatment, you're dependent upon somebody else for it. And Meds are a treatment, not a training. You don't end up with a skill set from taking benzodiazepines or whatever the hell else somebody may give you. Um, uh, you you've got a, a, a treatment, not a training. So what level do you need to go to? Oh, a high-level neurology, psychiatry? Mm, you know, counseling, cognitive behavioral therapy, neurofeedback, a psychologist psychiatrist, you know, pick your level. Uh, there, there's, there's a lot of different levels of support. Um, if you're going with pharma, obviously you're going to have to go to a psychiatrist um, uh, for, for that. Uh, now, some people say go to your GP and, you know, save the expense of the specialist. But, you know, uh, if you get a stubbed toe, the GP's fine. Uh, if you broke your wrist, the GP's probably fine. Uh, to refer you to the orthopedist, but uh, um, if if you've got severe depression from a loss, um, a psychiatrist. If you're going to end up uh, going for medication, a psychiatrist is the appropriate level. So, and not all psychiatrists are going to throw meds at you. A lot of them are are oriented towards um, integrative uh, psychiatry, and they're they're going to try nutraceuticals and cognitive behavioral and things like that before they go pharma. So uh, yeah, uh, pick your psychiatrist carefully as well. So. And then Jay, uh, HRV was in the news. Unfortunately, uh, DeMar Hamlin uh, got a blow to the chest and was, man, that was scary. It was an NFL game. It was yeah, a routine tackle gets trauma to the chest, and uh, this is not unheard of in sports. You know, uh, uh, baseball, softball, hockey. Um, yeah, yeah, hockey. A a any direct contact sports, you can roll your clock back to grade school and junior high and high school. There, there's rare, very rare uh, occurrences where somebody gets hits in the chest with a pitch or a hard, hard throw or something, and they, you know. You, there's a certain latency between the heart stopping and then you collapsing. It's like a one, a two, a three, a four, a blunk, you're on the ground. So uh, circulatory time, uh, the, the amount of time that the oxygen that's in the brain can support cognitive function. But you saw that on, on him. He, you know, he was hit. He bounced up almost instantly. It looked like, oh, well, just a little bit of nothing. You know, he's, he's back up on his feet and then you saw a little wobble and then pop one, like uh, like he was on a hinge. Yeah, Just straight back, bam, hit his head. Um, 
and is, uh, uh, luckily it was the heart stoppage, not a bleed. You can end up having a bleed next to the heart. It will do the same thing. It'll put you down just as quick. Uh, the difference, the difference is the treatment. Um, if you're in a trauma center and they realize there's a bleed, the uh, chest compressions are absolutely contraindicated. How the hell would you know that on the field? Only if you had a trauma specialist, you know, right. and and uh, the likelihood of that, I mean, they don't even have yeah, good head trauma specialists and they're having apparently trouble finding them now. Yeah. So their response, oh, let's lower the standards of who we're looking for. You know, come on. Uh, this isn't a business. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And and they're they're making they're they're making decisions on dropping the quality of the item that they're looking for. Uh, uh, kind of like an Amazon move um, yeah. as opposed to uh, <clears throat> um, a, a proper professional choice. Jay, what, but, what, what's we're talking about chemical energy in the heart. The trauma happened at the right moment to screw up the energy, just like when you get hit in the in the brain. But uh, now I'm going to get ahead of my skis here. But it seems like the the, rept <laughs> the reptilian part of the brain seems to kick in if your heart knocks out. What's going on in the brain uh, to to pass? I mean, if the blood stops, okay, that's it. Nothing's going on. But what, what's happening in the brain? Well, um, in the brain, uh, you, you need oxygen and glucose to function, and a little ketones as well, you know, to uh, balance out the mix of metabolic support. But when um, when your heart stops and you're no longer pumping blood through, oxygen levels will drop because you're using up the oxygen that's there and it's not being replaced. When oxygen drops you basically end up having a hypoxia, which creates a glutamate cascade, which creates cell death. Now, cell death doesn't sound very good, and it's not. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a bad circumstance. But it's, it's, a, it's the natural progression uh, towards brain death. Now, uh, they, they got him... Uh, luckily it wasn't a bleed and they were doing chest compressions and they had a defibrillator. Apparently they defibbed him on the field. And then again, in the hospital, his heart stopped again. Um, uh, so it, it was a severe trauma. Uh, um, and uh, so hypoxia occurs, glutamate cascade occurs. If you go into a coma unconscious in a coma from hypoxia, the amount of time that you have to be in a coma with no response before you're declared basically not probably able to recover is three months. In a head trauma, it's a year. Hypoxia is a much more severe loss of consciousness than a trauma. Um, and, and because of that, uh, uh, the, the uh, hypoxic uh, circumstance has to be avoided at all costs. We don't know exactly how much uh, time he was without, you know, oxygen and how severe that was. They didn't, there, there wasn't any trauma specialist out there saying, quick, hit him with barbiturates. 
yeah, uh, put yeah. him into a barbiturate coma so his brain doesn't need oxygen. Um, it, it, you know, you, you, it's a protective coma. Uh, and if they were really wise, had a trauma person on the field with uh, all the gear that they needed, a deliberate coma would have been an appropriate move. Uh, that's what they did when they got him into the hospital. Now, how much time did it take to the hospital? Hmm. They were on the field a long time. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they were doing what they could with the trainers and some independent practitioners, but there was no trauma specialist. And, you know, they, they need head trauma specialists and they just need trauma specialists because, you know, you can... You can have an injury uh, that that needs a trauma specialist. You just um, had a bunch of car crashes on the field there, right? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think the most violent crash that you can predict on the field is is a kickoff return. Yeah, um, that, that that that's a a, a a a train in one direction and a train in the other direction, and this isn't one of those algebra questions yeah. as to where they meet or something um you know they're going to meet uh, you just you just hope it's not head on and and uh, uh and literally head on you know um so uh it, it, it's inherently a, a violent game uh and there's no way around that they're, they're trying to moderate it the uh, newer helmets uh, if you do a helmet to helmet you know they uh, you know, you get uh, penalized or thrown out of the game, or uh, um, the quarterbacks are being protected. Uh, I mean, it's almost you can't, you know, if you touch them too hard in some fashion, uh, that uh, you know. So they've they've swapped the rules around to try and uh, keep it from being as blatantly damaging. But it's a violent game. There's a lot of violent games. Yeah. Uh, um, Basketball can be equally violent, uh, you know. Uh, uh, go 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 all the way up and into the air, have somebody clip your feet out from underneath you and land on the back of your neck. See if that doesn't end up doing something for you, you know. Uh, so, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, soccer, uh, you know, p- people run into each other, uh, you know, full force. Um, you know, that the, there's there's some nasty violent crashes and. A lot of things. Swimming. Well, swimming is so, so easy. Uh, be a backstroker or come in hard on the wall and see what it does to the back of your head. You know, um, so it, almost any kind of a sport can end up having a sports related injury. Some sports more probable than others. Um, chess. I, I don't you know, it's a game more than a sport, I guess. So, you know, you, you're, you're likely Maybe carpal tunnel from you know I don't know. Yeah, but have you uh, ever you ever watched Bobby Fisher? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and and you know, heart rate variability uh, is a way to train your heart to have more um, resilience. Um, it, uh, now he was twenty four years old. He probably had very healthy heart function. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's just the 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 luck of the draw to have a, a severe direct trauma to the heart and and shock it to a stop. Um, uh, but there are people 
that need to learn how to be to have a more resilient heart. Um, if your heart becomes too stable, if, if your beat to beat to beat to beat is too stable, it's a it, it's a rigid system, and it's likely to collapse. It, it's it's likely to stop. Uh, heart failure is predicted by too stable a heart rate. Now you think, oh, a nice stable heart rate is nice and stable. You know, something sounds good about that. But variability is resilience. Systems have to be flexible, or if they're under pressure, they shatter or collapse. If they're flexible, they'll bend and kind of, you know, find a way around what's causing the pressure. Um, and in systems theory, resilience is um, variability. And heart rate variability, it, uh, having a higher amount of variance between your inhale and exhale, uh, ends up having uh, a predictive uh, value. And again, it's a more resilient uh, heart rate. Uh, it may not have anything directly to do with, with the uh, football injury, but um, you know, in general, if you want to keep your heart uh, resilient and able to recover from things, just right. normal life things, not a necessarily a football helmet that falls speed to the chest, but um, you know the normal life stressors. HRV is a really really good uh, option. Well, I thought and it was balances sympathetic because, and parasympathetic balance. Yeah, the uh, the lack of oxygen to the brain and how they would affect in the coma and and all that and. Uh... I didn't even think about uh, putting him in a coma on the field. That uh, was uh, NFL's going to, you know, you want to keep making money. <laughs> no, you can't put everybody on the field in a coma and have a game. You know? so, yeah, it's like more um, more lawyers and doctors it, on the sidelines. Yeah, and you know, um, it, it it it's uh, it's a difficult circumstance uh, to, to end up having to respond in an emergency situation that's not in a hospital emergency room or a trauma center. Um, you know, that the doctor on the sidelines can say, we need barbiturates to put him in a coma. And let's see, where is that barbiturate syringe? Oh, in the hospital, yeah. <laughs> not on the sidelines in the hospital. Uh, um, it might be in the ambulance, but well, it's not, probably sitting on the sidelines you would think they spend yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars of these new stadiums where you can put a, a nightclub at in an end zone you can put a trauma facility in you know and, the, and some of them have have you know small uh, scanning devices not necessarily a full hospital mri or something but yeah. they have they have uh, some medical facility there but you know the uh, uh this will probably have them rethinking um, whether they need a trauma specialist. Um, and again, if they're having trouble finding people to evaluate for head trauma, um, <laughs> they're, they're going to have a, a, a long stretch uh, looking for uh, trauma specialists. Fair um, enough. So. so, Jay, what's next on the alphabet? Ah, well... You know, uh, we, we went through uh, fasciculi and Fs and yep. all of that, frontal and uh, all of that uh, last time. We're, we're all the way up to the Gs. And 
you know, gee whiz, uh, what's a G in the brain? Oh, maybe you like the geniculate, lateral geniculate for vision. You know, that's the thalamic relay of all your vision back to the back of your head. It, it Vision hits you in the eye, uh, goes down the optic nerve to the optic chiasm. It's split between to the other hemisphere, hot upper and lower visual fields. I mean, all of that ends up being relayed through the lateral geniculate way to the back of your head. And that's not where you necessarily see, but it's where, it's where you kind of start to see. Uh, the visual input to the back of your head is really kind of like the static on an old television where the rasters didn't line up to make an image. It's just raw data. It's, it's too raw to actually be perceived. It, at, in the back of your head, in the occipital area, it's convex, concave, this angle, that angle, the other angle, uh, dark surrounded by light, light surrounded by dark. I mean, it's all derubricized, raw, perceptual pieces that aren't integrated. And it takes about three levels of integration, sometimes more to get up into the parietal area so that the, the angles and the dots and the dashes and everything line up to make some kind of an image, but it's still not fully comprehended. It's just integrated into an image. You know, the, the vertical line and the, and the, the convex, concave line uh, might make the letter D, and then you got an O and a G. But in the parietal area, you don't know if that's dog or God. You know, it could be either. It's not integrated into a comprehension. That happens in the highest level of integration in the temporal lobe areas. Wernicke's area on the left. And I make a bad joke that nobody laughs at, and it's appropriate not to laugh at it. On the right-hand side, if Wernicke had a sister, we'd have his damn name on both sides. You know, she would have studied emotion instead of language. And, but it's a, just a bad joke. There's only one Wernicke on the left. The equivalent on the right is for emotion, facial expressions and body language, and the sound of speech, the song of speech. Um, my, what a good dog you are today. Uh, or my, what a bad dog you are today. The, the dog responds to the, to the lilt of the voice, not to the words good dog and bad dog. Now, if you say bad dog uh, or good dog, you know, it's a song that they hear, not the words. So, um, you know, the, the prosodic perception on the, the right hemisphere ends up being uh, integrated. And so eventually your brain integrates both the song and the words of speech to know whether there's sarcasm or irony, uh, some of the subtle forms of humor. If, assuming you assume you know, think it's humorous, you know, I mean, uh, <laughs> if somebody's saying something sarcastic to you, you may not think it's so damn funny. But um, uh, even to perceive that requires the understanding of the song of speech. And in the Asperger's autism, for instance, where they have difficulty with the subtleties of humor, uh, get, get a severe autistic Asperger's person to tell a joke sometimes. You know, it, it, it's it, it's very concrete. Um, it's not, it, there's no irony, sarcasm kind of stuff in it. It's, that, that's lost on them at that point. A uh, lot of training later, they get it. You know, neurofeedback is astounding on the ability to actually 
get these brain areas working in um, uh, uh, autism with language problems and autism with social perceptual problems. So we've got the lateral geniculate for vision. Auditory stuff goes to the geniculate, the medial geniculate. And it's a direct relay of the cochlea. If you took the cochlea, the kind of snail shell uh, structure in your ear, um, it, it's got little tiny hair cells inside of it that vibrate at different frequencies. The big fat end of the is a low frequency and the little tiny end is the higher frequencies. And, um, and that's basically projected into your temporal parietal junction uh, where the, the temporal lobe uh, kind of tucks up next to the side of the brain um, on the inside of the back edge of that temporal lobe, you have your auditory cortex, high frequency, low frequency. It's a point-by-point -point representation of the cochlea. And uh, so you get relay of sound directly from your sensory end organ. In this case, not your eyes, but your ears. And it goes through the medial geniculate. And it's relayed directly back to your auditory cortex. The trick is in EEG that the auditory cortex is tucked into that fold. It's not pointed out. It's hard to see in the temporal area activity coming from the auditory cortex. The auditory cortex is angled because it's folded in. It's angled up. And uh, brainstem uh, auditory evoked responses, B-A-E-R, bear testing, is done for... Uh, Infants that are deaf, for instance, you can't ask an infant, can you hear me? <laughs> and they will say, yes, they can't speak yet. Um, uh, you can clap your hands next to them and see if they respond. But, you know, that's awfully crude. How about if you put a headset on them and uh, um, uh, send in a series of uh, clicks and uh, their brain is going to respond to those clicks if they can hear them? And where do they see that response? dead center on the top of your head because both auditory cortices are angled up towards the top of your head and not out towards the temporal area. Earn up to 16 CEU hours by attending Applied Neuroscience's NeuroGuide Workshop March 4th and 5th in Madeira Beach, Florida. It's led by none other than Dr. Robert Thatcher himself. There are two ways you can attend online or in person with the link appliedneuroscience.com slash attend hyphen ng hyphen workshops. So that enfolding into the temporal parietal junction kind of insulates them from a simple surface uh, a spot. Um, the uh, P100, the, the 100 millisecond arrival of sound at the cortex happens as CZ. Not next to the, you know, auditory cortex, right next to it. It's, it's where the parietal cell is oriented. So, um, you know, we, we've got G covered for geniculates. But, you know, it's not the only G. G, there's more Gs. Um, uh, uh, globus pallidus. Uh, the globus pallidus is uh, uh, obviously an important structure with respect to motor function. It's part of the frontal striatal thalamocortical 
in inhibition of movement, but it's also the spot that can flip that inhibition into perseveration. If your cingulate becomes involved with the globus pallidus, it adds one more uh, uh, little step to the loop. The normal loop for inhibition is frontal cortex to the caudate, to the putamen, to the globus pallidus, to the thalamus, and then the motor strip. That has a net excess of one GABA, so it's inhibitory. The frontal lobe can inhibit motor function. If the cingulate becomes involved with the globus pallidus, it adds a little extra step instead of going cortex to the caudate putamen globus pallidus thalamus goes uh, globus pallidus subthalamus thalamus adding another GABA into the loop so the frontal lobe's inhibitory becomes a perseverative command the frontal lobe says stop the effect at the other end once the single is involved is stop stopping and that's perseverative so obsessive compulsive disorder um you know, normal uh, f uh, choice flexibility as to respond, not respond. Um, all of that has to do with this network in the globus pallidus deep in the forebrain ends up being involved in that. So it's a kind of a critical crossroads for um, free will, voluntary choice of go, no go. And um, it obviously... Uh, a, a major piece of the circuitry that's off in uh, motor dysregulation, hyperactivity, um, and that sort of thing. So there's probably other G's in there. You know, I, I but, you know, those are the big I'm ones. Old. I'm old. with gamma. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We could we could do gamma. Um, uh, gamma is obviously uh, not a structure. It's a it's a, a, a brain frequency range. There's gamma one, approximately 40 hertz, and gamma two, 80 to 100 hertz. And um, Gert Furtscheller, uh, who's uh, re retired, but he's a, a major figure in neuroscience in Graz, Austria, uh, his laboratory at, uh, at the Technical University in Graz, um, he came up with... Um, event-related synchronization, desynchronization, and wavelet analysis was really uh, more fully developed in his laboratory. Uh, looking at the rhythmicity at high frequencies, it's hard to see those little buggers. You know, one over F, the faster you are, the smaller you are. So if you're up at 100 hertz or so, you know, it isn't like you're going to get this gigantic waveform, but you're going to see rhythmicity. So you can look with wavelet analysis or Hilbert transforms to see the rhythmicity. It doesn't have to be big. It just has to be rhythmic. And gamma is not state. It's content. Um, alpha and theta, that's state. And the gamma will be nested in the theta or alpha. And that's content. The content is different than state. Uh, the state of a Zen master and a yoga master may be the same state, but they have different content. And that's easily demonstrated. If you have a yoga master, 
whose philosophy has taught them that the outside world is false. It's Maya, a false world out there. If you present a, a, a repetitive stimulus in the environment of a yoga master, they habituate to it almost instantly. It's false. Why respond? A yoga master. So a Zen master whose philosophy is different. They're in the same state. It, it's not like North Dakota. This is like a state, you know, internal state. Um, uh, they're, so they're in the same state. But the Zen master has learned that the beginner's mind is the master's mind. And every perception is a new perception. Uh, uh, everything is the, the new. Uh, the, the second time you see it is still new. The fifth time you see it, it's still new. Um, so why would you habituate to repetitive stimulus if every one of them is new? A normal person lies somewhere in between the Zen and the yoga master on their rate of habituation. But you can differentiate a yoga master from a Zen master, not by their state, but by their content. And that content, again, is not the lower frequencies. It's the higher frequencies that, that, that contain the content that you've learned uh, associated with the state. Now, obviously... A, a Zen master that's learned um, uh, you know, their internal state um, uh, that, 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 that can be identified. And gamma has been identified as, as an extreme amount of gamma in the uh, Dalai Lama's monks in Richard Davidson's lab in Wisconsin. And, um, you know, they're, uh, uh, they're, they're, uh, kind of love of the outside world and um, acceptance and uh, all of that end up corresponding with that. But it also changes their immune reactions um, and, and uh, the, the interaction between your state and your immune reaction ends up being something that medicine would love to harness. You know, oh, that's like your placebo response. Yeah. If you could put a saddle on that horse, you'd win the damn race. So um, that they would love to be able to harness the, um, the the effect that all of this, you know, twenty years of meditation uh, training has has acquired. Uh, there are those that think that neurofeedback can speed up the acquisition. I have to say, you can get the state, but the content has to go along with it. I would hypothesize that you could have the same state with a mass murderer. You know, it's the state, it's not the content. Mm -hmm. You can be in that state and have all sorts of other things going on. So it's probably not as common, <laughs> you know, but uh, luckily mass murderers aren't that common. Uh, uh, but um, it, it, state isn't the same thing as being a Zen master. There are people that will charge you thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars uh, to become a Zen master brain state. Doesn't mean you're a Zen master. It means you've got the state. What you fill that state with, the philosophy you fill the state with is, is content. And uh, that has to match up in order for you to end up considering yourself anywhere close to being a Zen master or yoga master.
or maybe a mass murderer. So. Jay, you allowed me to stray away from anatomy to to frequency with gamma. Maybe you'll allow me to stray on this tangent, uh, gabapentin and nerve pain. Is it possible sure. to do neurofeedback and get relief, the same type of relief from nerve pain than gabapentin? I... Yeah, gabapentin strips away excitatory neurotransmitters, and um, it, it does... Um, uh, kind of take the edge off of pain. It doesn't eliminate the sensation entirely. Um, uh, and it's used mostly, uh, it's an anticonvulsant. And it's used mostly for nerve pain. Uh, diabetic nerve pain is probably one of the most common uh, where you've actually lost the neurons because of your diabetic problems. And your feet tingle or burn or feel like needles and pins. Now, the pokey little needly feelings are going to be kind of dampened. Uh, the excitatory neurochemistry kind of cuts down on some of this peripheral nerve pain. Um, it, it cuts down also on uh, what's called central pain where there isn't something causing the pain, the pain is actually uh, generated centrally in, in the brain. Uh, cancer patients, um, uh, uh, the, the, there are uh, uh, significant pathologies that can give you central pain. And gabapentin, uh, sometimes uh, it's more potent, uh, bigger cousin uh, Lyrica, uh, a pregabalin instead of gabapentin, which is Neurontin. So, um, but anticonvulsants can be used for pain. And those two anticonvulsants are uh, uh, both cut down on excitatory neurochemistry. Now, you can dampen down the brain's response to pain with neurofeedback as well. Um, it, it's not quick. I mean, it, it's, there's a learning curve associated with it. And if you've got somebody who's in acute distress, you know, the, the pharma approach is now, um, the neurofeedback approach is a few months from now, um, maybe we should work together. You know, like some of the work on ADD that was done with meds and neurofeedback. Vince Manastra, one, one of the early uh, uh, pioneers in alpha, in, excuse me, in theta beta and um, uh, working with methylphenidate for theta. Um, uh, uh, they went into a school. They gave all the kids in the school that were hyperactive, that had a, a high theta beta ratio, they gave them theta beta ratio style training for half of the students and meds for all the students. Everybody in the study got meds and they, you know, meds, uh, the right med for that, they, they got better. Half of them got neurofeedback as well. Six months later, they pulled the meds. Neurofeedback people stayed okay. The ones who were meds only reverted back to their hyperactive ways. So, you know, uh, working not in, in opposition to pharma, but in cooperation with pharma in many cases ends up being, you know, strongly indicated. 
if I see epileptiform bursts in an EEG, I always suggest a combination of anticonvulsants and neurofeedback. The sooner you quiet down the network and it's not firing together, it won't wire together. And if you don't use it, you lose it. Slowly, the network will unwrap. And if you break up that network, you don't have the seizures anymore. So uh, the, the successful work we've done with intractable epilepsy uh, has been uh, in combination with meds, but eventually the meds are, are withdrawn as well. Full okay, success is Do they, do they taper off the meds? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, you can't just, if you're on, uh, well, quite a few meds, if you just pull them, you end up with a, a rebound. And rebound hyperexcitability, if you pull an anticonvulsant, is expected. And that's not a good thing. So you, um, uh, uh, quickly stopping, oh, I've been told that the Valium I've been on for the last 10 years is a bad thing. And I have to agree it's a bad thing, so I go stop it all of a sudden. Well, that's a bad thing. That's not good. Uh, you know, you, the rebound hyperexcitability may give you your first ever seizure as a withdrawal seizure from uh, a sedating medication. So, um, H, the next letter up. Oh, can only imagine, Jay. What we, the H, you know? Um, what the H? <laughs> uh, habenula. <laughs> So what the hell's a habenula? Where did I have left it? It's around here somewhere. You know, um, uh, sometimes it's called the epithalamus. And uh, um, it was uh, uh, actually the name habenular nucleus uh, uh, derived from uh, haben, which was the stalk at the base of the pineal gland. And that, that name kind of evolved into some of the local nuclear bodies, which include the habenula. So the habenula nucleus isn't just one. You know, what I like about hanging out with Dirk DeRitter, the neurosurgeon, MD, PhD, academic neurosurgeon, is that about the time you think you know a piece in the brain, oh, the habenula, there it is. Uh, he'll say, oh, well, there's the lateral habenula and the medial habenula. And they're different, and they do different things, you know. So, damn, you know, I gotta gotta get more complex, you know. And then you find out, well, the lateral habenula has like actually five little subnuclear bodies, and uh, the medial has maybe ten little subnuclear bodies. So, you know, you've the the finer gradation of knowledge you get, the finer gradation of knowledge you need. And there's somebody who's one step higher on the hierarchy of, of knowing things on this impossible learning curve than you are. And you need to learn from them all these mo one more level of depth of complication here. The lateral habenula uh, 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 basically uh, ends up uh, having uh, control over uh, 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 neurotransmitters. Uh, it modulates serotonin, norepinephrine, um, and, um, and also uh, NMDA. Uh, and the medial geniculate uh, modulates acetylcholine. So all of these are, you know, uh, uh, vital, important structures. You, you can't uh, just, you know, pass 
buy them and, and ignore them, uh, you, you've got to end up uh, uh, gaining more knowledge about them. Um, um, every vertebrate has a habenula. If you're a non-vertebrate, good luck. You don't have one, you know. But if you're a vertebrate, you've got one. Uh, epithalamus or the habenula uh, ends up being involved in motivation, addiction, which is involved with motivation, uh, pain, and sometimes pain ends up leading to addiction, um, and wake sleep. Uh, it modulates wake and sleep. As you might well imagine, if it modulates norepinephrine um, and, and uh, the serotonin, uh, it also is uh, uh, extremely involved. Involvement in depression has to do with its NMDA. Uh, and um, uh, oh, yeah, the habenula has a commissure. The habenula commissure. Uh, uh, you have a habenula on the left, you have a habenula on the right. Like your epithalamus left and epithalamus right. Uh, it's not just a, a single structure in the center. Um, and the habenula has been noticed to be smaller in those who have depression. So, you know, it's, it's an important structure. It's, it's not high on the list. Um, in severe tinnitus, the habenula ends up being involved in the network of severe tinnitus about the time that you're so deaf that you don't really hear well enough, your brain will search for memory of sound. And at that point, the habenula is part of that nuclear network. And uh, uh, an example of the sounds that you remember uh, suddenly being sounds that you think you're hearing, uh, tintinabulatory tinnitus, one of my favorite onomatopoeia, um, uh, uh, you know, tinnitus, you know, Easy for you um, and uh, it's hearing bells. Uh, as you start to lose your hearing uh, and you get a ringing in the ears, that ringing in the ears is just a, a high pitch or multiple high pitches. And eventually you start to hear the ding, 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 like somebody standing outside uh, for the Salvation Army at Christmas time, the, the bell ringer, uh, that, that's tinnitus. But if it gets worse, you can literally hear bell choirs. It's entertaining as hell. Uh, you know, I mean, you've, you've heard bell choirs at Christmas yeah. in some church somewhere, you know, the um, the, the whole bunch of little kids all standing there with their bells, you know, being the ding, 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 you know, they're playing nice songs. And so instead of hearing the ding, 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 you actually hear a more complicated ding, ding, ding. Shortly thereafter, you're going to be hearing things like voices and stuff that aren't necessarily things that are just random dings. So as you start to lose your hearing and the outside world isn't giving you your input, you're going to find inputs from inside. And those are usually considered essentially hallucinatory. 
but it's a natural attempt to the 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 the, the destruction of the actual ability to hear the network involved in hearing reaches to memory and memory uh, ends up uh, giving you uh, illusions of hearing. Now, I lost my hearing a long time ago to rock and roll music, power tools, flying airplanes as, uh, with my dad as a kid with no hearing protection, um, you know, just uh, too, too many loud things. And so I went into the audiologist and she tests my ear hearing and she comes back in with this chart that, you know, it's like, you know, the, uh, the, your audiogram says that you're deaf. I said, what? <laughs> I didn't hear her at all. What? You know, so, <laughs> what? You're deaf. What? <laughs> so she fits me with his hearing aids and now I can hear the, the alarm on the microwave. Um, the refrigerator door has an alarm if it's been left open. Um, Renita would yell at me from the far end of the house, the refrigerator door is open. <laughs> and I said, how can you tell? Oh, the alarm's going off. I walk right next to the you know, refrigerator. There's no sound at all coming from the refrigerator that I can detect without my hearing edge in. Put the hearing edge in, ding, 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 there it is, you know. So, um, you know, as soon as you start to hear the bell choir, uh, it's time to, to get off your high horse and actually get hearing aids as opposed to uh, going totally deaf and hearing voices and, you know, having, um, you know, if you respond to the voices you hear, then people think you're really crazy, you know? So, uh, so uh, you know, uh, the Habenula, uh, ends up being involved in the tinnitus networking at the time when you've lost so much hearing that you tap into memories uh, as as part of the the the, the ability to quote hear. Oh, one more thing. Okay. H H. Okay. Hippocampus. Of course. What was I thinking? Not to think of the hippocampus. It's your time? memory processor. It's your memory processor. Why was why couldn't I remember it? What's well, the freaking memory processor? That's why I didn't remember it. Um, the hippocampus. Uh, um, it, um, it's a really common source of epilepsy. The hippocampus, from both both injury and vascular issues, ends up being prone to damage. It's a high utilizer of metabolic function. Uh, it's busy metabolically compared to a lot of other locations. And um, mid-temporal sharp slow transients in the EEG in the temporal area quite often are coming from the hippocampus. There's a very nice paper from Niedermeyer who looked at 209 subjects um, uh, who had mid-temporal sharp slow transients, and they drilled down to try and find out what was really going on and they found hippocampal problems. Um, uh, you can have vertebrobasilar artery insufficiency, which gives you posterior uh, communicating artery uh, insufficiency, which is the blood supply to the hippocampus. So 
uh, in older age as vascular change happens and you don't get your carotid clogged up, if you clog up your vertebral basal artery, you can end up um, negatively impacting the hippocampus, which is your memory. Gee, what goes bad when you're old? Hmm, geez, I can't remember. I'm old, you know? So, so uh, the is hippocampus. The hippoc is the hippocampus, is that like the memory chip of the brain? Is it the solid state drive of the brain? It's, or it, yes? You know, it's, it, it's hard to make a, a computer analogy, but it, it's kind of like the memory uh, uh, memory bank for, for the Ram. brain. Um, it compares uh, everything that's going on uh, with everything that's remembered as well. Uh, the, the, the anterior cingulate holds a model of everything in it, and the anterior cingulate and hippocampus and amygdala are the major nuclear structures that are in the temporal area, and the anterior cingulate and uh, nucleus accumbens end up uh, uh, forming the anterior aspect of it. Um, uh, all, all that's uh, responsible for, for memory. And you compare memory of what you think should be going on with what you perceive is going on. And it tells you whether you're doing it right or not. If you have OCD, the anterior cingulate's usually giving you false messages. You know, you uh, but the, the what hippocampus happens if you've had a few too many with the hippocampus uh, well as you as you slow uh, things down uh, uh, well first of all as you start to relax a little bit memories come up you know the, the this is old lang syne time you know <laughs> <laughs> we can Remember all stand back around at the yacht club jay <laughs> uh <laughs> Vaguely, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, uh, hippocampus, it is a memory processor. It's Siamese twin, which is, I, I guess, uh, conjoined twin is a more proper term nowadays. I'm old. My apologies for being such a dinosaur. Uh, but conjoined twins, the amygdala and hippocampus are hooked at the hip. If you kick one, the other says, ouch. Um, uh, memory and emotion. Uh, in fact, early on, uh, uh, they would stimulate one and get a response out of the other, and they were saying, oh, the hippocampus is an emotional processor. Oh, the amygdala is a memory processor. Um, and it took quite a bit of time for them to kind of tease out the fact that they were getting responses out of the, uh, uh, the conjoined twin, not the one they were stimulating, but the one next to it. So um, over time, uh, with enough uh, you know, quality research, you end up not just lesioning or zapping something, but actually looking at, at them in natural function, as opposed to, you know, kick it and see who says, ouch. Um, they, they've identified that the amygdala is a primary emotional processor, hippocampus is primary memory processor. If you have one hippocampus removed, you still have memory. If you lose both hippocampi, good luck. Your memory function is kaput. It, you know, it, retrieving memories requires the hippocampi, one at least. It doesn't mean that memory is stored there. They looked forever for the engram. Where is that damn memory stored? 
if we snip this out, does it take the memory away? Or snip this out, does it? And they were lesioning and they were stimulating. They were looking for where memory was. Memory's not stored anywhere. It's stored everywhere. Holographic. Actually, holonomic is the proper term. And this is the um, contribution uh, from Carl Prebrum. And uh, Carl was a neurosurgeon, quit doing neurosurgery in 1949. He was one of the first class of people uh, board certified in neurosurgery. He was a great neurosurgeon. Uh, but he went into, into research on consciousness, the hard problem, as they say. And um, he, he worked with uh, um, animals and humans, and um, uh, uh, some may recognize uh, him as having lost a finger. Uh, rhesus monkey uh, bit him, and he got gangrene and lost his finger. Um, uh, um, but the, it was a mother monkey, and uh, he reached, uh, um, and uh, the there was a baby with her. She was just being protective. And he, he, he wasn't angry at her for biting him or him losing his finger. He, he recognized it was his, his mistake. Uh, you don't, you know, stick your finger in coochie cooing a baby monkey when the mother's there, you know? So, yeah. um, well, you know, you've seen the same thing with some dogs, you know, the, yeah. the protective puppies to, to a, a point where, the mother who was always a friendly, friendly dog gives you a little nip when you reach for the little pup. So, um, yeah, it, it happened. Yeah. Don't mess around with the, the kids. Unfortunately, Carl passed, um, but engrams are not stored anywhere. They're stored everywhere. If you slowly take pieces out of the brain, not rapidly destroy the brain, but slowly eat some away, the memories are still there with a lower and lower and lower resolution. Kind of like breaking the holographic plate. The interference pattern is printed in a plate. If you break it in half, you don't have half of the image in here and half the image here. You've got the entire image with half the resolution on both pieces. Break them into pieces. Every piece, smaller and smaller and smaller, has the entire image on it, just with a lower resolution. So... Um, uh, uh, memories are stored in a distributed manner uh, across the brain, not in a specific location. But to retrieve them requires certain circuitry. And the hippocampus is crucial for that circuitry. One will do. Two is better. Zero is not good. Zero won't work at all. <laughs> You're so. offline. <laughs> At least not that I remember. You know, so. Jay Gunkelman, so. thank you so much. Letters G and H. What a great show. <laughs> the Neuro Noodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. Like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience, and our silver supporter, Mind Media. Earn up to 16 CEU hours by attending Applied Neuroscience's NeuroGuide Workshop March 4th and 5th in Madeira Beach, Florida. It's led by none other than Dr. Robert Thatcher himself. There are two ways you can attend, online or in person, with the link appliedneuroscience.com slash attend hyphen ng hyphen workshops.
MindMedia. Get the latest EEG and neurofeedback technology from MindMedia.com. Their semi-dry sensor cap is a wonder to see, and their EEG amplifiers have been trusted in the field for decades. Their neurofeedback and QEG courses will get you up to speed in no time. Visit MindMedia.com now. <laughs>